0: I was speaking to a, a friend this week, and um, he was telling us about a member of his congregation, I think it is, as I say, I'm always very conscious now we're online, We've got to make sure your facts are right, or we'll get sued, or something else, you know, but um, I think it was a member of his congregation, or certainly somebody he knows well, uh, who's a teacher, who's just gone after the Easter holidays to a youth school, a secondary school, uh, and I'm sure this is not the case in Holy Cross, but it might be, David, you can talk to me afterwards, is it, if it is. But as he was getting taken around by a senior member of the staff, then apart from the usual things about you know, where the toilets are in the classroom and all the rest of it, and the senior member of staff said to, the, to this U teacher there that in the school they tended, when they were speaking about male and female, he or she, they tended not to use the, the phrases he or she, but they. And they tended to do that because the senior member of staff said that within their school, within the secondary school, they had a large number of young people who—and I'm reading this here to make sure I get this right—who who aligned themselves with being gender neutral, or bisexual, or non-binary, or who were open to transition to a different form of, of sexual orientation, sexual and physical as well as um, you know in terms of the allegiance, Um, some who were coming out as being transsexual, And then the conversation went on that there had been a very interesting discussion uh, related to some programs that were on Channel 4. Maybe some of you, I don't imagine many of you watched them recently, uh, about couples going to have threesomes. Did any of you watch that? I'm not trying to commend it to you, but it was on Channel 4. And another thing where they go away and they mix each other up, couples and things like this. There had been an interesting discussion just the previous day in a guidance class, or what used to be called guidance class, of what it means to be polyamorous. Did they hear somebody say, oh, goodness. But those of you who are teachers and who are working amongst young people will know that these issues are not only presented on Netflix and on Channel 4 and in programs and television and the various forms of the media, but are real issues that are being debated and, to be fair, schools are having to struggle with and deal with. Some schools may be more than others. gender neutral non-binary, transition, transsexual, and debates about multi-partnerships, multi-relationship partnerships. We live in a time where gender and all the things that flow from that is one of the main issues that are debated in public life. And young people, we're told, um, are challenged and provoked by. The answer, and there's no easy answer, And there are people, of course, who are confused, let's be honest, there are people for a whole host of reasons who are in these situations and genuinely so And We're certainly not saying that that's not the case. But the wider impact in society, the answer, if you're looking for a quick answer, is the main reason is because as a society, we've lost our connection with our creator. Genesis, the book of Genesis, chapter one. You've heard me over the years continually calling you back to that chapter. But in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that God created humanity. He created it in His image, and He created, we're told, male and female in His image. He created them. So, God created mankind in His own image. Genesis 1 and verse 27, in the image of God, He created them male and female. He created them. And this understanding of who we are and some of you may have been listening to the service on the radio this morning can I commend it to you once again? Um, it's taken from Northern Ireland. And really for our Sunday morning actually was really quite thoughtful and provoking. The pastor who was giving the message was just looking at the question, "Who am I? Why am I here? Am I here?" What am I doing? These fundamental questions that undergird and lead to issues such as non-binary transition, gender neutral, and all the other things that flow from that, these fundamental issues are there because fundamentally we have lost connection with our creator. If we don't have that understanding of a relationship with a creator who has given us identity and who has made us the way we are, then everything else sooner or later begins to fall apart. Now, there's people who could speak for hours on this subject. I'm not either gifted, nor do we have the time to do that, but nonetheless, that is the fundamental problem in our society, the Western world. We've lost connection. It's not even that just people aren't Christians, it's just there's just a general non-awareness of what it is to be created. You can argue that comes from the whole debate about evolution and everything else of the late 19th, early 20th century. As I say, you could spend hours debating all of that. What I want to encourage you about this morning, and I've said this before, and you'll find I'm repeating this. It must be a sign of getting old. Uh, but it's because there are truths that need to be repeated. We, I want to encourage you this morning to see that actually, as we live in such a society with all these issues bubbling to the surface and the issues and the problems and the stresses and strains it brings, we actually are living in a time when the New Testament and the letters of the New Testament are even more relevant than perhaps they were a few generations ago. For instance, the letter we're reading and going to be reflecting upon the next few weeks. And if you have a Bible, and I encourage you to even go and get one now, if you don't, we've not put them back out in the seats because we're all going to have to be taken away again with with this thing this week. So that's why they're still at the back. They'll be back out in the seats for next Sunday. But if you have access to a Bible, turn to first letter, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Or rather, before you do that, turn to the book of Acts and Acts 17. That's probably the best place to turn to. I had the privilege, a number of years ago now, back in 2000, 2004, I think it was, 18 years ago, I had the privilege of going with the Scottish Bible Society in a tour, in the footsteps of St. Paul, and it was a tour of the main sites of his second missionary journey in Greece, and then we had a quick kind of sail over, the made to Ephesus in Turkey, and we, we visited there as, as well. And one of the places we visited was Thessalonica, or Thessalonica. And one of the places we went to when we visited Thessalonica was the great, um, very impressive, Greek Orthodox Basilica in the center of Thessalonica. Some of you may have visited, some of you not so much a tourist place as other parts of Greece, but some of you may have been there. And you can go down into the bowels of the earth. And underneath this massive, impressive church, you see the early first basilica. Built by Christians in Thessalonica a, a way back in the 2nd, 3rd century. But that in itself was built on the, the ruins or the remains of a Roman temple you actually still see the street underneath it's amazing you still see the road with the the flagstones and the ruts caused by the, the 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 chariots going up and down carrying their their goods and their and their people and you see this the bottom part obviously of this ancient temple stroke basilica which in itself now holds up this massive edifice can I reach you and um, just as easy to read it to you than anything else just this comment about Thessalonica it was the largest and most important city in Macedonia, that's that northern part of Greece. As the capital of the province, it enjoyed numerous civic and commercial privileges, including the right to mint its own coins. In 42 BC, it became a free city governed by its own local rulers, a group of five or six men known as politarchs. It was situated some 90 miles to the west of Philippi and the Via Ignatia, the great Roman highway that connected Rome with its eastern provinces, next to a good natural harbour at the head of the Thermaic Gulf. Major north-south trade routes also passed through Thessalonica, further enhancing its position as a wealthy commercial centre. It goes on to say, religiously, Thessalonica offered something for nearly everyone. Not surprisingly for a Greek city, the traditional Greek cults and philosophic traditions were well represented, as were various mystery religions. Known for its early devotion to the cult of the Roman emperor, the city even minted coins declaring Caesar to be a living god, to be divine. It also boasted a sanctuary of the Egyptian gods, among whom Isis and Osiris were prominent. In contrast to Philippi, there was also a large Jewish-Jewish community, hence the reason of a synagogue. There's also archaeological evidence of local devotion to the highest god, inverted commons. And local cults, such as that of Calabrese, which during the first century was becoming the chief cult of the city. Finally running through all this is a substantial tendency towards syncretism and mixing of religious traditions. It was a place where you could find something for any persuasion or notion or philosophy or hunger you might have. And I'd want us, even before we read anything else, and I've said this before, as I say, and I'm not apologizing for repeating myself, it's not a sign of my dotage, it's actually a sign of becoming more aware as I get older of these great truths, that the world in which we live, once you remove the facade of Christianity, which has upheld our society in the past, once you remove that fundamental understanding of fact that we are created in the image of God, once you remove that, then you begin to see the world as it really is without the grace of God. You actually get a foretaste of what hell will be like. And the confusion, and the perplexity, and the moral and ethical sickness, and the consequences of that in people's lives, the damage it causes, the awful damage it causes, all of that is revealed as it was in Thessalonica, behind the facade of a beautiful city, the malaise that finally underpinned, not underpinned, but undermined the Roman Empire, led to its collapse. It was moral decay that led to its collapse. Not that enemies enemies outside quite easily came in and pushed it over, but by that time, it was already sick malaise within the same story of what's going to happen probably in the West. And that is where the church was born and where, despite everything, it flourished. So, let me read Acts 17. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphilius and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decree saying that there is another king, one called Jesus." When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and others postpone and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea, which is up in the hillside. We also visited Berea when we did that tour. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Well, they were nothing like a kind of weak kind of swipe, you know. They were more noble, the folk in Berea, than that bunch of folk down in the valley and at the coast of Thessalonica. But that's the context of how the church was founded. Paul was on his secondary second missionary journey, a missionary journey that took him outside of the the confines of the area around Jerusalem and Judea. Remember, Jesus said you start in Judea and then Jerusalem and then move out to Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. Well, that's what was happening. It's like a pebble dropping into a a pool of water. The ripples are starting to move out, and they're moving out into the wider empire, not just the period around where Israel, or where we know of Israel be. And they're going nearer and nearer to the very center of the Greco-Roman world. Thessalonica, one of the great cities of that world, as I've said. And Paul preaches and notice that he reasons with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. What we've just celebrated, Easter, is at the very heart of the Christian faith. And when we're seeking to persuade people and present the gospel to people, first and foremost, it has to be about Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. It has to be Preach, proclaim to them from the Scriptures. That doesn't mean we take the Bible and bash folk over the head with it. But what we say and what we proclaim finds its power and authority as the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and applies it to the people who are going to becoming the people of God. That is essential, and that's what Paul and other apostles did in the early church, and a church was formed. There were Jewish believers, those who came from that background, but notice also we're told there was a number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. These were people who, having seen the anarchy and the chaos of the religious life and the philosophy around about them had actually turned to Judaism and their conviction of the one God and the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and had begun to discover that that actually, the story of creation, the story of Noah, all these stories from the Old Testament, that actually that made sense of life, of who they were, of why they were here and of what it was all about. And so they were open to that idea. And my friends, this morning, there are folks in our society. Uh, in the conversation that took place when you know I was mentioning at the beginning about this teacher, there was seemingly quite a debate afterwards amongst a group of other teachers, not all of whom were geriatrics like me, who were saying, as I can see in your face, did I say, David, what is going on here, and wondering, and questioning. And there are folk who are doing that. Probably the vast majority of people in our country are doing that. And how we need to pray that as they pass through this church to vote, perhaps on Thursday, they'll move to lift up a try praying booklet and begin to discover, as these people did, the truth of the one true God and become God-fearing. And that's part of the journey of the coming to faith. But of course, there were those who opposed it. And so from the very beginning, the church was born out of persecution. Now, the last thing I want is soldiers breaking down through these glass doors and arresting me or anyone else, or for us to be getting our names taken, a bit like, you know, a kind of super test and trace, well, you're at church on Sunday, and then who are you going to affect or impact or cause problems with because you were at church? We don't want that. We're not looking for persecution, but the reality, not just of the Bible, but the history of the church, is that the church is born and the church grows when there's hassles. And in some sense, we should be thankful that we're living in a day when at last, I remember, dare I say, the 1970s where, you know, especially where I lived in the suburbs of Glasgow, where the, well, not the majority, but a large number of people went to the kirk on a Sunday. 500 gathered at Burnside for communion. With all Christians, no. But it was a thing to do. It was part of culture. You'll remember that here. When there were three churches of Scotland, and so they were all well-filled on a Sunday, and a Baptist, and, you know, a whole list of churches in a small community. But instead of lamenting what was in the past, we need to learn from that. And I should delight the fact that today, at least, there is clarity between those who are in Christ, and we'll reflect upon that in a minute, and those who are not and of the radical, and I keep using this word, fundamental difference with the mind view that knowing God brings and causes. But there's a reaction, and there was a reaction. And you can read that, and we've read it, for ourselves. Flick on to First Thessalonians now and I say we're not looking at the first chapter this is really just the background but I think I hope anyway it's a helpful background to the rest of the letter let me find it first Paul Silas and Timothy notice how Paul just as a wee aside younger men who are being trained and equipped and went along with Paul and that's the model that's the model as a church to encourage people like Alan in their faith to go and live their faith out in the real world and we saw Martin last time whether it's going to Vietnam or whether it's working in Birmingham it's neither here nor there our calling is to equip young people to grow up into Christ and to serve him and live for him that's what park kids and all the other things flowing from that seek to do that's our calling as a church to disciple and Paul's doing his bit, taking Silas and Timothy along with him. And he writes to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Many, many years ago, when I was at university, the first time around, during the summer, I used to help out with Meals and Wheels. The WRVS, you know what I'm talking about? And the reason why they were keen to have me was because they seemed to keep sending from the council these weaver's. And that, (laughs) I wouldn't like to do it now, but I was able to get in and out this wee van with the meal and deliver it. And the women who were there, well, they would maybe kind of sit in the front seat and tell you where to go. But I was the one that had to do that. But I remember one of the guys who used to be the driver for the van, probably from the council, was a Christian person. But I remember getting into, well, I didn't get into, he kind of gave me a lecture about the understanding of the word ecclesia. What is the word that's translated here? The church. And rightly so, he told me or reminded me, I can't remember which, that actually the word translated as the church is in common parlance the Greek language, those who are gathered out and gathered together. So it was a word that could be applied, for instance, to those who meet in the hall on a Monday, um, once a month or a couple of days a month actually, at the stamp club. They they come out from their homes. They gather together in a place. They share together a common interest. In that case, their interest in philately or postcards. That's what they talk about. That's the thing that binds them together. I can assure you they're a pretty, I'm going to say desperate group, (laughs) a disparate group. They're quite a disparate group. Uh, And what binds them together is not the fact that they're all from the same kind of background necessarily or anything else. Age-wise, well, there is a kind of common age-wise, I have to say, I'm one of the young ones. That's why I go to it, cheers me up. Uh, but also, this common connection, this passionate connection. You see some of them when they get going, actors not know what I'm talking about, you know, and when they get going, they're really, you know, enthused about But many of us will look at and think, well, it's just a stamp, you know, or a postcard. But that's an ecclesia, and I say, But what backed out, of course, the gathering together and the coming out of the church in Thessalonica is what it goes on to say, the church of Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This coming together of a distinctive group of people centers itself and finds its unity and its goal and its purpose and its identity in God. God the Father, the Creator, who calls all creation to worship Him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, Paul later on, we'll look at this next week, talks about that. Verse 9, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescued us from the coming wrath, Jesus Christ, Paul preached on that message of Christ crucified and risen. And although it's not explicitly mentioned here, no doubt Paul also knows it's God the Holy Spirit that makes all of this real. He takes from Jesus and makes us known. As John tells us, he convicts us of our need of a Savior. He convinces us of the one who is the Savior, and he converts us. He is the one who brings us to faith and stamps that seal, that hallmark of ownership in our life. And so the distinctive group, and there's plenty of other groups in Thessalonica that would meet together, philosophically, religious, and everything else, but this group was distinctive. It was the ecclesia, the church, because it founded its raison d'etre, its fellowship, its faith, its hope, its love, everything in God. And I trust, and I would dare to believe it's true, that that's why we're here this morning. That God is at the center of heart, not just of what we sing and what we do here in the church, but of our lives and living. For he has found us and has called us to himself. He has revealed himself to us. the the mystery, but also the wonder of it all, that the creator of heaven and earth should deign to reveal himself to us. Sinful, God forsaken often, human beings, who in his mercy brought us from darkness to light, from being lost to being found, From being one time no people to being the people of God. From being spiritually dead to being alive. And so this distinctive group, Paul says, grace and peace to you. Grace, great riches at Christ's expense, telling us of what God offers us. The mercy the love, the forgiveness, the resilience, the renewal of God given to us, which is seen in peace. Jesus Christ, our peacemaker. Can I tell you, and hopefully up to now it's been quite encouraging, but can I tell you that the church of Jesus Christ in Scotland today badly needs grace and peace? covid has brought to the surface what was already there, not just in contemporary society, but the issues within the church to do with age, to do with fragility, to do with the fault lines that people have, but, you know, this is what I believe, and this is what you believe, and, you know, all the rest of it, and it has created a very febrile and very fragile situation. And it's God's grace And the peace that flows from that, that alone will hold us together. And Paul goes on, and time's going on, so I'm going on. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. That positive thankfulness. We do not, we may well have disagreements with other Christians, but we should never despise a fellow believer in Jesus Christ. We should pray for them and do so with a heart of love, aware that all of us, all of us need God's grace and God's peace in our lives. And Paul fervently continued to mention them in our prayers. And particularly, he says, we remember for God our Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Kind of read you the same verses, but from the Good News Bible. We always thank God for all of you, Paul writes, and always mention you in our prayers. For we remember before our God and Father how you put your faith into practice, how your love made you work so hard, and how your hope in our Lord Jesus Christ is firm. We meet this morning with yet another scandal in Westminster, do we not? I was going to say, but I noticed, I don't know, well, there is somebody there, but I'm sure, Janice, you're not looking at tractors on your mobile phone. I can say it to you because I know you. How sad. What an indictment. I'm not talking about the individual man. Just the whole story. No wonder people are cynical of the institutions of our society, including the church. You imagine if that happened in Thessalonica, if it had mobile phones in there, that would just be, oh, see these Christians, see that church. Well, what marked out this Christian community was this not their failings, and we all have them, not their frailty, and we are frail. Not their faults, and yes, we have to confess them before God and ask for his mercy and grace to change us, but their faith, which was put into practice, their love, which made them work so hard, and their hope in the Lord Jesus, which enabled them to be firm, despite the fact that they were facing persecution. You see the dynamic of this. I deliberately included in the intimation sheet the picture later on from Corinthians of Paul talking about running the race. This is a proactive thing. And particularly this morning, I do make an appeal to those of us who are, let's be honest, are a wee bit younger. What is your work in life? I know what your jobs are. I know the demands that they bring, which are great. I know you've got mortgages to pay and you've got kids to grow up. But ultimately, what is the work that God has called you to do? That thing that you have to go for, that thing you have to strive for, that thing you have to throw yourself into and give yourself over to with enthusiasm and the dynamism and the dependence on the grace and peace of God to do it. We need a generation of believers who are going to rise up and be counted in our society, who are going to fight the faith, who are going to run the race, who are going to engage in the battle with the armor of God, and having done all, they're going to stand, not run away. And that's only possible as we allow the love of God to pour out Paul Romans talks about the Holy Spirit pouring God's love into our hearts only as His love is poured out a bundle into our hearts. Only as we have that hope in the Lord Jesus Christ that on that final day we will stand and know that we are His and He is mine. But that's the calling of the Christian. Not just in first century Thessalonica but 21st century Scotland. Paul thanked God for them and remembered them in prayer. And I do that sitting over there, many a Tuesday and Thursday morning, remember in prayer. Yes, we can easily be disheartened by the state of our nation. That teacher was left confused. I think he was left wondering whether that really was a job for him in this particular school, wherever it was. Yes, we can be fighting the battles without and the fears within. We all have that. That's why with that message of that song that Alan taught us was so important. But we have a mighty God. And what he did in Thessalonica and elsewhere in the ancient world 2,000 years ago. He is doing, and will do, and can do again. So let's be thankful, and let's offer ourselves afresh to the one who alone is worthy of our praise. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.